If you want a great conversation with a Philadelphia sports figure you should know more about, listen to one-on-one with Matt Leon on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In-Depth. I'm Matt Leon. Issues with alcohol were very much prevalent prior to COVID-19, but they have gotten worse since the uncertainty and the lockdowns of the pandemic. A recent study from Harvard's Massachusetts General Hospital showed some of the long-term effects of that increase in alcohol abuse. We wanted to talk about this, also how to address it, so we caught up with Eric Greminger. He is the CEO of ERP Health in Philadelphia, a technology platform which helps individualize behavioral health care. Let's kind of go back to prior to the pandemic. Where were we kind of as a society with substance abuse? Obviously, you know, the opioid epidemic and stuff like that. But like binge drinking, things like that. Were we seeing a decline or where were we as a society? The lion's share of the focus was on the opioid use disorder, you know, the opioid epidemic and people with opioid use disorder and how to get them help because that was really where we were seeing the overdose deaths. Drinking has always been fairly steady with certain demographics, and it's something we, uh, as professionals, keep an eye on. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the primary focus. I'll say that. So then, the pandemic hits, and I don't think anybody that's kind of paid attention to to the pandemic and the kind of the mental trauma it's wrought on multiple levels and fronts is surprised that once the pandemic hits, we kind of see substance use, specifically alcohol use, kind of go through the roof. And then there's this study from Harvard's uh, Massachusetts General Hospital. Talk a little bit about what this study showed and kind of what we've seen overall from the pandemic. So the study essentially showed that because of the significant increase in alcohol consumption during the pandemic, it's predicted now by 2040 that there are going to be significant downstream health impacts. And we're talking, you know, there's comorbidities. So it's one thing to have an alcohol use disorder. It's another thing when that turns into long-term liver failure, things of this nature where, you know, it could lead to deaths in in that regard. And also healthcare expenditures go way up in, in that sense too. So I guess, one, you know, one of the things that I've noticed, uh, you know, that we've noticed as an outcome tracking platform is during the pandemic, people were experiencing isolation. They were experiencing exacerbated mental health symptoms, not even realizing in a lot of cases that the drinking was starting to increase. And what can happen in those cases, let's use depression as an example, you're feeling depressed, of course. You know, there's a lot of variables going on during 2020, uh, not just the pandemic, some uh, political disruptions, things of this nature. You're you're isolated. There's no, not many people around to hold you accountable. Start drinking a little earlier in the day. We'll say three o'clock, a few weeks go by, that drinking starts at two o'clock. The uh, frequency picks up, the intensity picks up, you're drinking just a little bit more. But what you're starting to do is is associate, I'm feeling depressed, I have a few drinks, I feel a little bit better. 
So now you're essentially creating a very unhealthy cycle that could quickly and rapidly turn into problematic drinking and potentially get you to a point where you meet diagnostic criteria for an alcohol use disorder. So that's really what we've been seeing, this gradual uptick. It wasn't necessarily a spike, pandemic spike. It's been a gradual uptick. And it makes a lot of sense because when you're around a lot of friends, a lot of family, you could be held accountable. Like, hey, hey, man, you know, I noticed that you're drinking a little bit more than usual. Let's talk about this. But under the kind of umbrella of isolation, things kind of spiraled out of control over a period of time. And we're in a weird spot now. We're still in a pandemic, although a lot of people have punted on that completely. I would say the political situation is maybe not worse, but it's unhealthy overall. We have a lot of trauma in the news. Are we noticing these trends continue, even you know, though maybe we're not focused so much on the pandemic, we just things overall kind of have a downward feel to them? Generally speaking, yeah. I mean, the patterns are still continuing. What we're noticing, in, you know, in the, through our research, you know, we have the, the the privilege of working with providers throughout the United States, and one of the things that we measure is uh, alcohol use by demographic. So historically, you know, males twenty to forty range, that was kind of where we noticed it most. But we're also most recently seeing older adults spike in in alcohol use disorder, females. And I believe that the general sense that most people are getting as it relates to society is like, when's this going to end? You know, like it's, it's, uh, I'll, I'll say it's not, it doesn't seem optimistic, at least from what I could observe. And that tracks really well with looking to process some of the things going on, whether that be pandemic, whether that be political disruptions, process it through alcohol, you know, through the use of alcohol. It's it's subtle in the sense that it's accepted by our society. So it's not something where, you know, if you're doing heroin, that's obviously a very red flag. You know, that's a red flag for anybody. Alcohol, you could kind of function, you know, and and get away with it. But that doesn't really prevent any of the long-term problems that this study has found or that uh, we have found. What are we doing to address this? How do we start to get the battleship turned in the right direction? I think it starts with screening. There's tremendous opportunity at the primary care level. So you could go in. This is one of the things that we really try to promote. And we're, you know, based here in Philadelphia, we work with several primary care physicians who wanted to use our tool to screen for problematic drinking and and drug misuse. So you would go in for a routine physical, be presented with a tablet in the waiting room, complete, it's, it's a five minute screen to just see if you're drinking more than five drinks a day. Just a few questions that could then be populated in the primary care's office. So when they go in for that physical, it'll showcase whether or not this person has been you know, drinking in a concerning way and give the physician an opportunity to do a brief intervention and then refer that person to, to a treatment center if, if we need it. Prevention, that's how we could sum that up. There's also ways 
I could send you a text message right now. You could open the link and take just a wellness check-in. If we have a way as a society to check in with people, number one, it personalizes the process. Cannot, not everybody has reached the problematic journey. Some people, it's, you know, it's still recreational and casual, and that's fine. And oftentimes, this is really what's interesting when it comes to uh, alcohol, as it differs from other drugs uh, of abuse, where a lot of people don't even realize that they've reached that problematic point. But with a little bit of education, they're like, oh, goodness, let me kind of reorient my, my day, my habits, and get them back on track. So it's, it's preventable in that sense if we have a way, and that's where technology really comes into play in a powerful way, because at scale, we could, we could assess and screen just a, a wellness check-in, we'll call it, mass amounts of people, and then collect all of that information, aggregate the data, and get a general sense of where we should be allocating educational resources. And that's a, a very achievable goal with the technology that's available right now. I think it's something we should strive for as a city to make sure that we're getting early, we're intervening early because it's way harder to treat once it's evolved to the point of a disorder. Talk a little bit more about this technology. You've kind of referenced it, you know, the, and you, this is something you you've come up with. So the concept was based on my own experiences. I'm a person in long-term recovery from a substance use disorder between 2005 and 2010, I'd gone to three different treatment centers. I was in and out, what's now known as that revolving door. You know, finally through through grace and the help of a lot of really great people, uh, on August 4th, 2010, I got into recovery and I've been in it ever since. On on my recovery journey, I went back to school, Drexel University here in Philly, studied to become a clinician myself, and I felt compelled to look back on my struggles with uh, addiction and figure out what went wrong. Because, uh, you know, the clinicians were really great people. I'm sure they were highly qualified, but I wasn't having success, you know, three different times and no success. So basically what I determined was the logistics of some of these busy medical centers, whatever it might be, don't really lend to an individualized experience. And I feel like I would have benefited from personalized care. So I wanted to come up with a solution for that. I was also dealing with severe depression at that time. And I would go through a 28-day treatment center. The depression would go undetected. Well, if it's undetected, you can't treat it. So I wanted to come up with a way to more quickly identify uh, what's known as comorbidities, two conditions existing at the same time and interacting with one another. And then finally, when I left the, the center, nobody followed up with me to say, hey, are you still doing well? Are you still following the uh, treatment protocols that, that, that will help you? So basically, I wanted to come up with a system where we were able to stay in touch with individuals with substance use disorder or alcohol use disorder over the course of one year. That's not an arbitrary number. Uh, research coming out of the Recovery Research Institute, Dr. John Kelly, found that if we could get somebody to a one-year mark, 12 months in recovery, the likelihood of them maintaining recovery exceeds the likelihood of them relapsing. So I wanted to basically come up with a uh, technology that helped with that, along with an amazing team. <laughs> so it's definitely, it was my idea. I wanted to solve for that. 
but the the team really brought a lot of the science into it. I mean, we have just uh, an amazing clinical advisory team and um, just team of very talented, compassionate people who put the technology behind what I wanted to solve for, where we're an enterprise-grade outcome tracking platform. Uh, we leverage the power of technology to promote personalized patient care and health equity. So the technology works starting at the primary care level. Day one, we collect the baseline assessments, measuring everything from depression, anxiety, trauma, a lot of these uh, issues that we know are very much uh, connected to substance misuse. So we take those benchmarks and then as they're progressing throughout treatment week over week, we're continuing to measure whether or not they're responding to the intervention strategies being offered at that center. If we're seeing the opposite, we're able to say, wow, I wanna know within week two, whether or not this person's responding to treatment, because then I could pivot and change the treatment protocols to get the person back on course. That is both personalized care and it promotes health equity. Certain demographics do better in different settings. And if we could identify, let's say one treatment center does really well with African-American females age 18 to 35, whereas another treatment center does really well with males age 20 to 40, uh, Caucasian males age 20 to 40 with alcohol use disorder. Well, that allows us the ability to properly refer based on culturally appropriate recovery resources. So we're running alongside all of the existing clinical procedures and just informing at a high level, the clinical staff on which direction that they should go with treatment, but we don't stop there. So let's say the individual does four weeks, does a 28 day stay at a, at a treatment center. Once they discharge, that's oftentimes when the work begins because that's when they're gonna have to put into practice what they've learned at the treatment center. We're able to go with the patient via an app and do regular monthly wellness check-ins throughout the course of one year. So basically addiction is defined as a chronic brain disease. So chronicity implies management. What the technology allows us to do is manage the condition of the individual throughout the course of treatment via the same treatment protocols that they were doing at the treatment center. So it's an extension of treatment. We need to take a break. We will have more with Eric Greminger right after this. This is KYW News Radio in depth. And we are back continuing our conversation with Eric Greminger. They're great tools you you present, but a lot of them depend on the person being self-aware enough, concerned enough, forward enough to answer honestly. I would imagine there is a not insignificant number of people who would be in deflect and deny mode if they were presented with that, no? One of the things that there are, what are, what are known as stages of change, you know, I'm a, I'm a clinician by trade. So one of the things that I typically do and, and any, you know, trained clinician would do is try to identify where this person is as it relates to these stages of change. So teaching a person to properly self-assess is actually one of the key essentials 
of motivational interview, of, of trying to get a person to establish intrinsic motivations to be that agent of change in their own life, to take the initiative and say, this is getting out of control. But ultimately, what we try to do is hold up a mirror and say, this is what's going on in your life. And now let's take a look at what's been happening over the past year and what are some variables that could be contributing to your health concerns. But again, the difficulty and where we we kind of bump into some struggles with alcohol is it's promoted. You know, it's 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 ubiquitous. It is something that is, you know, uh, on billboard and commercials. So, uh, and it's socially accepted. So you're you're constantly kind of taking a look at social acceptability versus problematic drinking versus you know when's it time to seek treatment and you're just kind of uh, always trying to take a look at at it holistically and see well there are a certain percentage of people who would like to know how to change and if we focus on those individuals we could probably over the length of a year two years three years reduce some of these major that you know some of the major health concerns that this study coming out of mass general found are going to be and we're going 2040 now so we're, we're talking long term looking at the data now and saying okay of those 8,000 additional deaths related to uh, liver failure by 2040 that this study suggested where we were able to actually educate them and they modified their behavior based on the education presented because they were properly screened, uh, downstream could have some pretty significant, you know, it could reduce that 8,000 to uh, 6,000. The ramifications of alcohol abuse are just kind of all over the place and we kind of deal with them, but we don't kind of talk about like the big problem is like it's everywhere. And if you're maybe not as strong or you're having issues, it's so easy to access. It, it seems kind of obvious to me that we need to we need to at least have to start to have the conversation that, you know, maybe it shouldn't be this quite this easy to access. Yeah, I think the comparison to cigarettes is a great one. I think that's something it's just unfortunate that we had to wait until it reached such you know, heights before we had the warnings on the boxes, before we outlawed promoting it in various media outlets, et cetera. I think that's the direction that we have to go, but you're right. There, there are significant barriers. It's interesting. One of the first things that we, we teach people when they're entering, you know, into the real world after uh, being at a recovery center is how to answer the, qu the question, why aren't you drinking? And you would think it would be, you know, well, first of all, none of your business. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to drink. I, I prioritize my health. There's a lot of answers that we, you know, coach them on, but it's that's indicative of a society where this is so deeply rooted within cultural norms. Like it's just it, it, that it's abnormal if you're not putting essentially a poison into your body. I mean, the physiological effects are are really, really significant as it relates to sleep, as it relates to weight gain. The literature on this topic is robust, to say the least. I mean, leading experts screaming from the rooftops that this uh, does, in fact, 
And then occasionally there'll be that one study on red wine that helps, you know, and that'll be the one that has shined. And you know, the, the money behind that industry, of course, plays no small part in uh, the information that gets out onto the web or you know, onto the news, but kind of back into the state of you know, our, our current society. And you're like, hey, there's, there's all this amazing research and evidence and people who are really smart who are finally getting an opportunity because of podcasts to kind of present their findings in a, a more engaging way than PubMed. And still, it just gets washed away by promoting people at the beach, sipping Bud Light in the most relaxing setting you could. And when in the reality is you, you put on 30 pounds and, you know, you that's true, like beer bellies, things of this nature, we also know about. It's been certainly romanticized in our society uh, through pop culture, through the media, and I, that's a very difficult fight to have. But I think the cigarette, I think eventually what will happen, and this might be 2040, that the health impacts will be significant enough where we're like, we have to stop this. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In-Depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.